0: All right, so I'm excited because we finished up our five solas series last week, and next week we are going to start a series on the book of Ephesians, which I know a lot of you uh, in the Women's Bible Study, um, a group of you went through the book of Ephesians, and Ephesians is just a really beloved book, so I'm excited to go through it. We did it before. um, I think probably about five of you are around to remember the last time we did Ephesians, which was year one, so that was six years ago, six and a half years ago. Um, So it's time. We're going to do it again. And uh, so today, I want to talk about something that I think that I want us to think about as we go through the book of Ephesians. So um, you've heard me mention several times, um, I just mentioned it periodically, this idea that uh, as we read through the New Testament, specifically as we read uh, Jesus and his teachings and then we move into the apostles' teachings, you hear... um, slightly different language and slightly different terminology in certain things. And so uh, you'll hear sometimes about uh, the gospel of the cross and the gospel of the kingdom. Um, And so what I want to do today is talk about the gospel of the kingdom because I think that's going to be really instrumental in helping us understand a lot of things that are talked about in the book of Ephesians. But I also think that it's just a really, really important thing for us as the church to understand. Does that make sense? Yes, of course it makes sense. I don't know why I say that all the time, but that's what we're going to do today. So um, if, I were to, if we were to set up a microphone and we were to single file, in single file come up here and I was to ask each one of you, um, define um, what the kingdom of God is. Tell me what that means. Jesus talked about it all the time. What, what's the kingdom of God? Um, we would probably get 99 different answers. That's just, I mean, that's just not something that I think that the church has done a really good job of defining and explaining and talking about. Uh, we just kind of, most of us would kind of go, Heaven? Or, you know, we just kind of, it's not clearly defined. So hopefully today, as we just kind of do a quick overview um, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we'll bring out, I think, what the kingdom of God is. And so as we go into the book of Ephesians, uh, we'll have that in the back of our minds. So as we listen to Paul's words, we'll go, oh, and hopefully it'll shed some new light on things. So um, the term kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven are kind of interchangeable in the New Testament, but you don't see either of them in the Old Testament at all. Um, But I think it's important for us to understand that as this idea is talked about in the New Testament, there's some assumptions being made. And we'll get to that in a minute. First, we're going to read Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight." So John preaching, John the Baptist preaching, consisted of two things: repentance and the announcing that the kingdom of God was at hand. So that's what John the Baptist preached over and over and over. And so then, when Jesus, immediately after John the Baptist, comes onto the scene, in fact, in his first, uh, the, one of the first records of his preaching, we have him in Matthew chapter four saying, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." So. Uh, Something that's really interesting is that neither John nor Jesus anywhere recorded in the Gospels ever spends any time explaining exactly what that is. Well, that's not exactly true, but initially neither of them do. And Jesus does later, and we'll see this later, but he does it in kind of a really weird way. Um, Why is that? Like, why would John the Baptist introduce this idea, the kingdom of God is at hand, and not explain it? Why would Jesus say that and not immediately? explain it. Something that we read and we go, wait, what's he talking about? The the assumption is that the people that they're talking to would know what it was, right? Like the the, the, Israel, the the nation of Israel would know what this idea was. And so in order for us to discover what that is, we have to go back to the Old Testament, right? Even though that term isn't used, it's got to be there for these people to know what it is. So for, for me, um, we'll look at it this way, for, for Jesus or John to explain to, the, to Jewish people what the kingdom of heaven was or what the kingdom of God was would be like me explaining to Americans what McDonald's is, right? Like it's so central to a part of their, to their culture that explaining it to them would be incredibly redundant. Like there's nobody in this room, wait, what's McDonald's? Like if we ask, you know, if we, had, again, microphone, define McDonald's, 100% probably. Right, right. And then we have some, you know, some people that probably would say it's evil. And that's debatable. I mean, whatever. Let's yeah. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to go back in the Old Testament and we're going to look at some ideas and we're going to look at some snippets of scripture that I think are pointing us to this idea of the kingdom of God. Now, which starts in Genesis 1 and 2, okay? The idea that this this kingdom idea is actually woven into creation. And we see this in Genesis 1 and 2. When God placed Adam in the garden. In Genesis 1, starting in verse 26, God said, "'Let us make man in our image after our likeness, "'and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, "'over the birds of the heavens, "'over the livestock, over all the earth.'" And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. So this idea of uh, this, this kingdom language, this kingship language, this dominion language is woven into creation. So when we talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, this structure has been put in place from the beginning. And so Adam, the first man, and his wife Eve were put in place to rule over creation, to have dominion over it, to subdue it, the book says. It was there from the beginning. God put Adam on the earth to represent himself. But we all know the ending of that story, right? Adam failed in the task that he was given. Adam failed to do what God had placed him on the earth to do. But this idea continues. Let's move on to Genesis chapter 12. God calls Abram, whom we now know as Abraham, and promises to make him a great nation. Now, in Genesis chapter 17, he says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name will be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So now we have this idea in in a, in a much more limited sense, right? After the fall, being given to Abraham, and, and, to, and Abraham was actually told that this idea of nations and kingdoms was going to come from him, and all this stuff was going to happen. So, um, in Exodus 19, we are told that the, the nation of Israel saved from the land of Egypt to become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests. So even though we don't see that phrase, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, we see this idea woven all the way through Scripture. Habakkuk 2.4 tells us that they were given the, the, the task of spreading the glory of God to every corner of the earth. That's the purpose of the kingdom of priests, the holy nation. That's what Israel's task was to do. And if you look at it really closely, you go, the job that was given to Adam and the commission giving to the nation of Israel ultimately are the same, right? To make the glory of God visible to all creation. Isaiah calls them the light to the nations. Israel was meant to be the light to the nations. So this brings us to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we're just kind of flying through this. There's a lot of stuff that we're overlooking, right? 2 Samuel chapter 7. God makes a covenant with David, who was a king over Israel, correct? I put away from before you and your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever before me your throne will be established forever. So the promise that God made to David was that he would establish the throne of his kingdom David's kingdom forever. So we again we have this idea this kingdom uh speech this kingdom idea all throughout the Old Testament And so then, again, we see, just like Adam failed, just like Abraham failed, just like David in his line, we see, like as we read through uh, the Old Testament, we see that David's line did not last. And David and every other king after him did what? Failed. Failed to live up to the commission that they were given. This idea to be a kingdom of holy priests and a light to the world, to, to spread God's glory throughout all creation. They failed. And so what we see in the Old Testament throughout the time of the kings and beyond, all the way through the prophets, is this constant uh, heralding of the future, of the one who was to come, right? Which, which is first is spoken of here in this, in this uh, promise made to David that his kingdom would be established forever. And so then that brings us to Jesus. Luke 17, Jesus being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. So what's the kingdom of God now? We can look back to the Old Testament and go, ah, the, it's the kingdom of David being established forever. And so the, the nation of Israel from the time of the exiles all the way through up until the time of Jesus were constantly looking for the one who was going to reestablish the kingdom of David. And so when Jesus, when John and then Jesus immediately after him said, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand, people were rubbing their hands to go, together going, here we go, baby. Let's kick those Romans out of here. Because that's what they had in their mind. This promise that was made to David, that the kingdom of, the kingdom of God, the, the, ultimately the kingdom of David, would be reestablished forever. So then Jesus says this, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And So here's what I want us to understand. Some of us know this and some of us I don't think clearly understand this idea. This is why Jesus was killed. If Jesus had come, and done signs and miracles and told the Pharisees, it's coming now, get behind me, we're taking on the Romans, they probably would have done it. Because that's what they thought was going to happen. That's what they believed and that's what they hoped was going to happen. So as soon as Jesus started to make these statements in this way was when ultimately he started to be rejected. Now, we could have these conversations theoretically all day long, but ultimately we know that that didn't happen. And they didn't follow him, obviously. But ultimately, the reason that Jesus was killed, in addition to claiming to be the Messiah, which they were looking for, but nobody could actually claim to be, it was really weird. Was that ultimately, as he began to do miracles, and as he began to claim this identity for himself, he walked down a path that was different from the one that they were looking for. And so when Jesus said, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, I mean, because you can observe a revolution, right? You can observe a kingdom being established on earth. So this was incredibly confusing to them and incredibly off-putting because the nation of Israel desperately wanted independence. They desperately wanted to return to the good days, the kingdom of David. So now, as we go through the New Testament, as we talk about this idea, there are two questions raised, or actually one question raised, about two different aspects of the kingdom. So it's now, right? Yes. But it's, we'll read from scriptures, it's in the future, it's not yet, right? Yes. Confusing. All right, so here we go. We're going to talk about this idea, this idea that the kingdom is here. Like when Jesus said the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, what was he talking about? He's talking about himself. He's talking about himself. He's talking about him. He's the king. He's here. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. But he's also talking about the future. So we're going to tackle this. So um, many of the, as we talk about the kingdom, we have to keep this in mind, the, the already and the not yet. And so, uh, one of the big mistakes, and we'll talk about this earlier, one of the big mistakes that we do in reading this idea in in the New Testament is that we claim promises now that are meant for the future, and we miss things meant for us now that we put off. Does that make sense? So we have to understand that there are promises made in the New Testament that are made for the not yet. And so if we march around as Christians claiming these promises right now, we're going to be incredibly disillusioned with the brokenness that we experience. Do we understand that? So there are certain aspects of the kingdom that are not yet. And so as we read in the New Testament, we have to be careful to understand the already and the not yet and to make sure that we don't mix them up. Because we will be confused and we will be disillusioned. So many of the blessings of the kingdom are here now to be enjoyed now, to be claimed now, and many of them are not. Yeah, some of its power is available now, but not all of it, right? I mean, so, so uh, the, the, I think the biggest avenue and the biggest area where we see this is the idea of death, right? So I do not have to fear death. Why? Because the kingdom of God is here. Uh, death has been defeated, but the fact remains that death exists. Physical death exists. It will not exist when the kingdom of God is culminated it, it, in fully consummated. It will not exist, but we are in the already but the not yet. So I do not have to fear death because I know my ultimate reality for eternity is in the absence of pain and death. But right now we live in a broken reality where it still exists. So we don't fear it, but it still hurts. It's already and it's not yet. So that's the, that's the, I think that's the biggest thing. So that trickles down to every area of our life, every area of life where we have this idea of the already and the not yet. So the kingdom of God is present. Let's go back to, to Luke 17. Being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, there it is, Or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So again, the big misunderstanding about the Messiah and about the kingdom of God was that the Messiah was going to lead a revolution and was going to usher in the new kingdom of David. Kick all the Romans out, kick all the foreigners out, and boom, set it up. In fact, there are a lot of people that think, um, and there's I mean, I think it's a good argument that, that this is actually why Judas pr- betrayed Jesus. That he thought that by handing him to the Romans, he would force his hand. And that Jesus was kind of working too slow. That's not actually in the text, but that's, that's a theory. Because he believed that Jesus was the Messiah and that he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. So he decided to, you know, if he handed him over to the Romans, then he would go and go Hulk or whatever. I don't know. Let's look at Matthew chapter 12. Okay, this actually isn't in your notes, but here's the story. Here's what happens. The Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of demons. And so Jesus' response in verse 28, he says, If it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus was fulfilling the prophecies that the prophets had made about the Messiah. And he says, hey, if I'm doing this by the power of the Holy Spirit, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's saying, it's here. I'm here. I'm the one. It has come. But, Luke 19, verses 11 and 12, Jesus tells them a parable. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Wait, he's there. So it it is immediately, right? It's there. Therefore, he said, a nobleman went into a far country to receive a kingdom and then to return. So I'm not going to read the whole parable to you, but uh, Jesus is telling them this parable to illustrate to, to them the fact that the kingdom had not Yet come, so it was already, and it was not yet. He was here, but ultimately, it was not going to be consummated in the way that they thought it was going to be consummated until the future. So Jesus did explain. Uh, when we say Jesus didn't explain the, what the kingdom was, he did, but he did it in through parables, and it was 180 degrees from what they thought it was. This even confused John the Baptist. Right? So later on in Jesus' life, John the Baptist um, gets arrested and is in prison, and he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? Wait, so you're the guy that was born for the specific purpose of heralding the Messiah. And then when Jesus comes to you, you baptize him, and God himself says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, and the Holy Spirit comes in the form of a dove and lands on him. And a couple months later, you're in prison, and you're going, wait. This wasn't happening the way it was supposed to happen. Because even John the Baptist probably had this view that the Messiah was coming and how he was going to establish the kingdom was this, 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 and this. So when that didn't happen, he got a little confused. And it's really interesting that uh, Jesus' answer to John the Baptist, look it up, and look up the quote that he actually quotes to John the Baptist. It's very, very interesting like the, the part of the portion of Isaiah that he quotes back to John the Baptist and the part that he doesn't quote back to John the Baptist. Anyhow, um, so John the Baptist was confused by this. The, the, I mean, th- this caused uh, an incredible amount of confusion among the disciples, especially after his death, right? That, uh, that p- time period between the death of Jesus and Easter morning was incredibly confusing for them. Because the Messiah was dead. Wait, this was the one? We left everything. We left everyone to follow him because we believed that he was the one. What is going on? They were incredibly confused because there was a fundamental misunderstanding of what the kingdom of God was and how it was being ushered in. And Jesus constantly told them parables. Jesus said this to his disciples in Matthew 13. Matthew 13 is a great place to go, by the way, if you want to look at some of this stuff and see what Jesus was really talking about. In verse 11, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets and mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And so there was an avenue to which, the, and there was a degree to which the disciples did understand these things that the rest of the crowds and the rest of the people didn't understand. He said, it's been given to you to know the secrets and the mysteries. So Jesus himself acknowledged that this was mysterious. He actually uses the word secret. And here's the important thing that we have to understand. And this is how, like, Part of this kingdom idea has to move to us. It doesn't happen through physical domination. Right? This is one of the most, I in my reading of the, the, the my daily reading of the Bible, this last uh, couple weeks I've been in the book of Revelation. And over and over and over and over we see the people in heaven being referred to as those who, conquer. And again and again and again, it refers to how they conquer. How do they conquer? By their blood and the blood of the Lamb. We conquer through our suffering and through our death. This, in a, to a large extent, is a big part of the mystery and the secret of the kingdom. It seems backwards to us. Jesus is gonna come, and he's gonna, he's gonna, mm, he's gonna, mm, he's gonna, mm. and right, like, remember Carmen the champion? Like, oh, he's a boxer, and they made a movie about it, and he's you know all buff, and that, like that, even that, as Christians, it's a, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what the gospel of the kingdom is and what the kingdom is. We conquer through being conquered. In Revelation, when Jesus comes back on his white horse wearing a robe dipped in blood, whose blood is that? It's his. It's a massive shift in thinking, and it's a massive shift in our hearts to understand how we live in the kingdom now. This is why it's so frustrating to me as Christians when we fight for our rights. This is an incredibly American thing. And it's an incredibly human thing, but it is contrary to what we see in the person and work of Jesus. We are citizens of another kingdom. A kingdom that is already, but not yet. It's here. It's in the midst of us. We, the church, are reigning as Christ's viceroys, as the the nobleman representing the creator of the universe. We are his representatives. And this is the other thing that we have to understand about the kingdom is and versus the king, we have this like the kingdom of the cross and the and the, the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of the cross, which are actually the same thing. Right? So here's what we have to understand: you and I are saved by the blood of Jesus. Period. But we have to get past the fact that we are just saved from hell. And this is where this idea, the the gospel of the kingdom comes in. All throughout the Old Testament, right? From the time of Adam and then moving through Abraham. What was the promise to Abraham? You'll be the father of nations. All the world will be blessed through you we have been saved from our sins and we have been placed into a family. We have been placed into a nation. We have been placed into a kingdom. And so far too often, we focus on what we've been saved from and we spend far too little time focusing on what we have been saved to now the already and the not yet. This is our hope. This is why we can live broken lives, suffer unbelievably, and still have hope and still have faith because we have the already and that's a taste of the not yet. The hope and the joy that we now have is is literally a foretaste of what is to come for eternity when everything that is evil, death, mourning, is put away forever. But it's here. It's in you. It's in me. It's in us. We were designed to work in this together. But, so, right, Matthew 13. Here we are. The parable of the mustard seed. Verses 31 and 32. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of of mustard seed. Anybody ever seen a, a mustard seed? Is it big? No, it's little. Which, which a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree. So the birds of the air come and make a nest in his branches. That's, that's the kingdom of heaven. It's a seed. It's a small seed that grows and grows and grows and grows and becomes a great tree so that all the birds of the air come and make its, the, their nests in its branches. It's not a military coup. The church will never conquer through demanding recognition or demanding its rights or demanding its tax status. The church conquers as it is destroyed. Look at the first 100-year history of the church. The Roman Empire expelled a lot and expended a lot of energy and resources trying to destroy the way. And what happened? It exploded to the point where within 300 years, it was the official religion of the Roman Empire. Take that, Nero. I mean, it's unbelievable. Like, it started with 12 people hiding in a room. And within a 100 years, there was millions of people spread across the entire empire to the point where the Romans didn't know what to do about it as they slaughtered them continually. This is how the church conquers. We've lost that mindset to a large extent as we fight for what's ours. This is not how the kingdom of God works. And here's the other thing about the kingdom that's scary. As you read specifically through Matthew 13, the parable of the sower, the parable of the wheat and the tares, and the parable of the fishing net. Go read them. They are scary. And the warning behind them basically is there will be a lot of people who are caught up in the power of the kingdom who will be thrown out. When Jesus says, many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, and I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Wait, what? I thought if we confess the name of Jesus, we'll be saved. You and I and our place in the kingdom is dependent heavily on our repentance before and after and continually as we submit to our King. Now. Now. Read those parables. They're scary, you guys. So two applications. First one, we've talked about both of them. The first one is that we have to be very careful that we do not claim promises that are meant for the not yet. And we do that a lot. We have to read carefully and we have to ask for help. I ask for help constantly with these things. Wait, what does he mean right here? What's he talking about right here? And the second thing is this. I'm just going to quote John Piper on this because I think he words it so well. Beware of assuming that all who are swept up into the power of God's kingdom are the children of the kingdom. The power of the kingdom gathers many, Matthew chapter 7, into its net. This is the parable of the fishing net. Gathers many into its net that will be cast out in the end because they loved healing, but not holiness. They loved power and not purity. They loved wonders, but not the will of God. We see this constantly throughout Jesus' ministry. People People would be like, oh, he turned water into the wine. Oh, he's asking us to give up everything and follow him. Never mind. I mean, Jesus' three-year ministry was littered with these things over and over and over. People that wanted the, the healing, wanted the blessing, but didn't want any of the sacrifice. And when Jesus comes back, there will be many that claim to be Christians, that claim to be followers of Jesus, that have no love for his authority and no submission to his will. And he will ultimately say, depart from me, I do not know you. So, this idea that you and I are Christians is necessitated on the fact that Jesus is our King, right? There is no difference between um, uh, having Jesus forgive your sins and Jesus being your Lord. There is no difference, and you can't have one without the other. Randy and I watched a documentary last night. Randy's here, by the way. Randy Poor, our missionary from the Dominican hung out with me, ate pizza last night, drank kombucha. It was awesome. We watched a documentary when we talked about this idea that, that we can, the, the heresy of the modern church that would teach that, that we can pray a prayer, ask Jesus into our hearts, and just because I say those words means that he will. Where did that idea come from? Not from the Bible. Jesus does not come as a beggar begging for you to love him. He's a king. And we could submit to him through our repentance and through his promise that he will freely forgive all of our sins. Okay, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we are not freely forgiven through his grace by our faith. What I am saying is That being forgiven of our sins and believing in Jesus, our faith is necessitated on the fact that he is the king. He's the king of me. He's the boss of me. He's the boss of you. And for us to, to say that we follow him and yet walk in a manner that is opposite of what he's asking us to walk doesn't make sense. Not according to what Jesus says and not according to the Bible. This is why we can read the book of James and not find it contrary to the gospel. As the book of James says, do this, do this, do this, do this. This is what Jesus is asking us to walk in. Our failures in walking this way are paid for. It doesn't mean that we don't walk that, right? Our failures are paid for so that we can walk it freely. I can walk the walk that Jesus has asked me to walk. I can pursue the things that he has asked me to pursue, give up the things that I want to pursue, Imperfectly, I can fall flat on my face a thousand times a day knowing that his forgiveness is there, but also knowing that I am being asked to stand back up, to take his hand, and continue. And when we refuse to do that, we demonstrate that we are not submitting to his kingship. We are not submitting to him as the king in the kingdom. Already, not yet. There's a massive amount of separation happening in these parables in Matthew 13. A separating of those who are citizens of the kingdom from those who are not. And it drives me back to the cross and this week, as I was looking at these parables, it drives me back to the cross. It drives me back to repentance. Lord, I am sorry. You are my king. Establish yourself in my heart again. I need you. I need you. I need you. And we submit to him. And as we submit to him, understanding that he is the king, the king sits at the father's right hand, reigning until ultimately all of his enemies are under his feet. The king's righteousness is my righteousness. The king's spirit is dwelling in me. The king's holiness is already now being produced in us. The king's joy and peace are already being given to us. The king's power to witness is readily available to us. So you and I, as the church, as the chosen people of God, as a kingdom of holy priests, man, the book of, as we understand this gospel of the kingdom, we read the book of Hebrews, man. It is so unbelievably beautiful, right? Our small group just read through the book of Romans, chapter by chapter, one chapter a week. And then this last week, we read all 16 chapters out loud. And man, you can see it so clearly. The Gentiles being grafted in, and the kingdom of heaven moving forward. The already and the not yet. We live, you and I live our lives in a broken world, citizens of a kingdom that is subversive. The seed is growing. The mustard seed is growing. It's in you, it's in me, and it is growing, and it will come to fruition. Everything that is wrong will be made right. Make no mistake. That is our ultimate hope as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, as citizens of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your plan, your sovereign plan, Father, to... Create a nation for yourself, a kingdom of priests reigning in your name. God, I pray that we would understand what that means for us today. That when you say to pick up your cross and follow you, we would understand that we are indeed conquerors. that as we suffer, as we give up our rights, as we sacrifice, that we are conquering through your blood. Father, I pray that you would, that you would continue to take your place as king in our hearts. That you would help us understand how to live our lives here in the now and the already looking to the not yet. We love you, Lord. We pray this in your name, amen.